Good afternoon, everybody. Say something. And welcome. Actually, very, uh, very pleased that you're able to make it to this talk today. Here at the medical centers, you know, we're always trying to improve regarding quality, patient safety, patient centeredness, the experience of care for the patient, and efficiency of care delivery. And through the efforts of Dr. Marcosi, we actually were able to invite somebody who truly exemplifies all of what I just said, really an international leader in all of those areas. So the University of Maryland Medical Center is indeed honored uh, to host Dr. Brent James as our speaker today. Dr. James is internationally known for his work in clinical quality improvement, patient safety, and the infrastructure that underlies successful improvement efforts, such as culture change, data systems, payment methods, and management roles. Dr. James is a member of the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine, and has contributed to many of that organization's seminal works on the quality of medical care and patient safety. He is a fellow of the American College of Physician Executives and holds faculty appointments at several universities, including the Stanford University School of Medicine and the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. James is currently the Chief Quality Officer and Executive Director for the Institute for Healthcare Delivery Research at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City. Intermountain Healthcare is an integrated system of 23 hospitals, almost 100 clinics, and a physician group and HMO PPO insurance plan with more than 550 healthcare practitioners. For more than 20 years, Dr. James has championed the optimization of clinical care through data collection, and analysis of a wide variety of treatment protocols and complex care processes. He's been honored with numerous awards for quality improvements in the delivery of healthcare. And through the Intermountain Advanced Training Program in Clinical Practice Improvement, Dr. James has trained actually more than 2,200 senior physicians, nurses, and administrative executives from around the world in clinical management methods. In fact, 27 daughter training programs are actually now up and running in six countries. So thank you, Dr. James, very much uh, for being here and for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to come to our medical center. Really looking forward to hearing your presentation. Thank you. Thanks, and good afternoon. Um, we have about a total of an hour and a half, but what I thought I'd do is take the first hour for a formal presentation and then perhaps take the last half hour for a good open discussion, physician to physician, clinician to clinician, about what's happening to our profession and what's happening to our industry. It really breaks down into three parts. Uh, the first part, I wanted to review the force that's driving the change. Uh, not gonna go away, gonna get worse. Uh, spent the morning at a National Academy of Medicine meeting that really is addressing those same features actually in the face of ongoing health reform change in Washington, D.C. A second piece, I'd like to tell you how we got started down this course. I think from an academic perspective, it's really quite interesting. And way back in 1991-92, while doing a randomized controlled trial around acute respiratory distress syndrome, we stumbled into a particular approach that Alan really championed for us. And I wanted to show you that. I think it's a, a unique tool for how we think about our work not just as clinicians caring for patients, but as clinical scientists. Uh, I thought those three areas might be of use to us. So first of all, the force driving the change. Truth is, I spent most of the spring of 2009 in 
DC, testified four times to various committees on the Hill, Senate Finance being the most prominent. More than that, spent literally weeks of time with the senior staff of those committees. That's where the real action happens, of course. It's not the senators or the representatives, it's their senior staff. That's where the issues get identified, that's where they get debated, that's where the legislation actually gets drafted. We had two issues on the table. The first was 46 million Americans without health insurance. Just seems wrong that the richest economy in the world would have this holding true. The second, though, is where I really focused. Uh, the fact is, is that healthcare costs have been increasing so rapidly that without some sort of a turnaround, uh, it's going to bankrupt the country. Uh, I was trying to argue that we ought to deal with the cost first <laughs> before we did the obvious need of extending insurance to a wider population. Let's just say that our Congress people didn't have much of an appetite for discipline. Uh, they would rather have dessert than their vegetables at one level. And what we got in that law was almost exclusively insurance reform. Some nodded ahead to reform of the health system, but not much. Why is that important? It's not so much the size of the deficit as it is something called the fiscal gap. This is actually a slide I showed in that 2009 testimony to Senate Finance. It comes from the government, the Government Accounting Office. What it shows is something called the fiscal gap. The fiscal gap is the difference between the federal government's income, mostly through taxes, and their projected outgo. Um, yeah, the deficit is part of it. The deficit is, uh, this is 2009 data. It's for people alive in 2009 projected forward is the way the GAO would analyze it. The reason I selected this, it was the most conservative estimate that I could find. Um, the federal deficit at the time is everything through that orange bar. But just to, to illustrate the reason that the young people in this room shouldn't be too reliant on Social Security as a means of funding their retirement that program, despite consuming roughly 13% of all wages and salaries in the United States, a truly impressive stream of funding, 6.5% on your pay stub, 6.5% matching funds from your employer, that program in 2009 was $7.7 .7 trillion short of meeting its obligations. For people alive in 2009, no one born thereafter. Now that's a shortfall, that's not the total spend, that's the gap. Roughly the same size as Medicare Part D, that's up here. At the time, $7.2 trillion shortfall, that comes out of the general fund. Um, that's the new drug benefit that the Republicans passed back in 1998. Very similar legislative tactics to what the Democrats used with the ACA, by the way. The big guy, Medicare Part B, payments to physicians for their professional services primarily. Yeah, $17.2 trillion shortfall. Part A trust fund, that's hospital care, $13.8 Now if you total that up, it comes to $60 trillion. That's what's called the net present value. What is the cash we should have on hand right now to anticipate its value down the road? It means you deeply discount distant money. And that's the right way to do it financially. This is the most conservative estimate that I could find. Oh, did you notice that two-thirds of the shortfall for the federal government is healthcare. The size of the bubbles are correct. Now I've updated the data here to 2014, but I want you to pay attention to the size of the bubbles, Medicare versus Social Security. About two thirds of the, the federal government's financial problems are healthcare. You, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, it's an easy case to make. Technically, the government of the United States is bankrupt. 
Seriously. I mean, not just politically and morally, but financially. <laughs> um, now, they argue that it's not real because they could shut off payment for Medicare and Social Security on a political whim anytime they choose. They say it's not really a, a true financial commitment, it's only a political commitment, but you can separate out the reality of that for yourself, I think. Oh, by the way, that was the most conservative estimate. A far better analyst at the time, a fellow named Foster, ran the CMS office of the actuary, deeply respected across Washington, said the real number was about 120 trillion for people alive in 2009. If you then included population shifts, people born after 2009, other people joining our society, it was about 211 trillion. 211 trillion, that's a big number. How do you make sense out of that? Well, here's my best way. The current value of the United States of America, all public and private, intellectual and physical property, your homes, your cars, this building, slight advancer, all of it, about 75 trillion. See why I say that the government of the United States is technically bankrupt? That's what we face. And eventually, those turkeys, chickens are way too small, those turkeys will come home to roost. It's just a matter of time. Now, relative to this, when we were working on the ACA, it was really about insurance expansion. Uh, we were looking at several trillion dollars of additional funding in order to fund the expansion of insurance to a larger proportion of our population. President Obama asked us that we limit the deficit spending piece to a trillion dollars through 2020. And it was done through three primary mechanisms. The first is if you include them all together, the largest tax increase we've had in about 40 years. Bit here, bit there. For example, on your commercial insurance that you pay for your health insurance for your employees in this system, you now pay a tax to help fund the exchanges. Well, the subsidies on the exchanges, you see. That's just one among many. Uh, the second was just classic government smoke and mirrors. We had 10 years of funding against six years of expenditure. The insurance didn't kick in until 2014. So they used 10 years of income against six years of expenditures, made things look better until 2020 when it went on year over year, and then there's this hockey stick effect in the spend. Uh, the third factor, they fairly arbitrarily, with no visible means of support, just cut expected payment to physicians and hospitals. Uh, just to focus you briefly, the cut to MD payments, physician payments, under the ACA was $196 billion. Reduction in rate increases to physicians. Uh, to give you an illustration of what that looks like, uh, this was the actual financials from the ACA. Now, I'm gonna come back and talk about this sudden abrupt drop. It's called the sustainable growth rate, the SGR. You're probably familiar with it if you're in medicine. The SGR passed Congress in 1998 to be implemented in 2003. They said that you needed a run-up period to get ready. I personally believe it was so that the public could forget who passed it by the time it hit. Um, it limited Medicare Part B, the professional fee payment piece, to rate increases in the growth of the economy, so GDP, so that payments to physicians would grow no faster than the economy. It had been growing substantially faster. But what followed in the next um, 11 years, 17 11th hour delays in its implementation, what we call kicking the can down the road, because of a political reality. By the time the ACA came along, 
The size of the SGR accumulated reduction was roughly 23%, just over 23%. And by law, when CBO scored this, they had to include that. That's that big drop. But then under the law, payments to physicians for Medicare patients continued to decline. In fact, by about 2020, you're down just over 50% of private health insurance and Medicare payments were to be substantially less than Medicaid payments. What would happen if you did that? What would happen if you cut payments to physicians for Medicare to below Medicaid payment rates? What it means is we'd have an awful lot of elderly Americans who had an insurance card, they had Medicare, they just didn't have a physician. Most physicians would not be able to afford to treat them. You couldn't keep a practice alive at that level of payment. Hence the kick the can down the road solution. Now, of course, what we got more recently is called MACRA, uh, the DOC fix, Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act, passed on April 16th, 2015, just two years ago. It replaced the SGR formula. It cost $205 billion. I'll show you where the money came from. I got a kick out of this one. 64 billion of it was funded. 141 billion added to the national deficit by the Republicans who led it. Well, that's not fair. It was massively bipartisan. And that turns out to be a key finding in this thing. The fact that it was massively bipartisan is a big deal. Streamlines other physician quality incentive programs and quality measurements along the way. This slide, again, from the federal government, um, CMMI shows the comparison of the two. So the black line is the medical expense index, the cost of running a practice, inflated over time. And it assumes that for Medicare, Medicaid, that in 2014 you were break-even. That turns out not to be true. It underpays a bit. But assuming that it was break-even, the blue line is the effect on payments to physicians under SGR. The green line is the doc fix, MACRA coming down. And the difference between those two lines is $205 billion over time, all right? The thing that impresses me about this, yes, the drop in payments to physicians under SGR was pretty steep. This is ACA technically, I guess. But with the green line, while less, it's still fairly impressive, isn't it? So they were planning on cutting payments to you, to me rather dramatically so that they could balance the federal budget. See the idea? Yeah. Final regulation was released um, on October 14th, 2016. It kicks in on January 1st of this year. We don't need to go into the elements of MACRA, but you need to know that it's associated with rather dramatic reductions in payments to physicians for our services. In fact, this slide shows best case. Uh, under MACRA, you have two, two programs you can use. I don't plan to define them, MIPS versus APMs. The APMs are the gray bars, and that's where you want to go if you want to maximize your payments from the federal government. What it shows is, is across 23 years, they plan in the best possible scenario a total across 23-year rate increase to physicians of about 12% across 23 years, so less than a half percentage point per year while medical inflation will probably run about three to four. Um, hence the slide that I showed you earlier, where reimbursement for our services drops rather dramatically in any scenario. How do you plan to run your practice, guys? When a major source of funding 
across the board about a third, but probably for an academic center, maybe as much as half of your payments to physicians is dropping by 50% relative to inflation. See the problem? Of course, it's not just physicians, it's also hospitals. This is the same slide for hospitals. They assumed a similar reduction in payments to hospitals, a place where you might be able to do your work. Now, the form that this has taken is, is interesting. Um, yeah, this comes from a very health up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They laid it out in a nice way. What the government did was pass a whole series of, quote, quality initiatives around quality metrics where they then would reduce payment for Medicare based upon quality metrics. For example, one of my favorites, hospital acquired conditions, this guy, the law is actually written to require that one quarter of the hospitals in the United States, 25%, will have their total Medicare reimbursement reduced by 1% across the board for all Medicare if you score poorly on hospital acquired conditions. Just in passing, only 60% of that measure is something called PSIs, Patient Safety Index, that Greg Meyer built at AHRQ a few years ago. Not for this purpose, by the way, in Greg's defense. He's now a senior physician leader at Massachusetts General Hospital and Partners in Boston. Um, yeah, we did a, a gold standard assessment of PSIs. They had a 5.8% true positive rate and about a 50% false positive rate. Would you consider using a lab test that had a 6% true positive, 50% false positive rate? That's the test they're using for avoidable complications under the federal payment program. Takeaway from this, all of those programs have the surface patina of quality. That's how they pitch it politically. Um, what its reality is underneath, when you peel off that surface layer, it's all about cost reductions. Now guys, this is the force that's driving it all right here. This is a force that will continue to make it happen. You're seeing the turkeys come home to roost. You see, if you think financial pressures on the health system in the United States have been intense to date, you ain't seen nothing yet. It is going to get much, much worse for hospitals and for the physicians, nurses, and other clinicians who work in hospitals. And that's just a reality. That missile is in the air. All right, that's what we're facing. This is what's driving the change. Well, hold on to that thought. I wanted to shift gears, part two. It happened to me way back in 1986. Um, I was happily working, there we go, um, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. I had a faculty appointment in the Department of Biostatistics. My real assignment, I did randomized controlled trials of cancer therapies as part of the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group at the time, the largest multi-center trials group in the world. I was over GI tumors. So at any given point in time, I had somewhere between about four and six randomized trials that I was overseeing. This is my main work in that department, kind of their technical physician to, in theory, a clinical appointment. I trained originally in surgical oncology, but frankly, doing essentially no clinical work at all. Um, all just research. Had a major personal tragedy. Um, I moved back to Utah, mostly to get closer to family, me and my three-year-old, when it became just the two of us. Um, Took the job at Intermountain, kind of sight unseen. Now as a fairly typical academic physician, research-based academic physician, I didn't know that administration existed. 
In honest truth, I really didn't. And was shocked some months later to discover that I was the third physician in Intermountain's administrative ranks. Holy cow. That came as a surprise. Bumped into a fellow named Steve Busboom. He was Intermountain's vice president for finance a few years earlier in 1983. He'd built one of the world's very first, what's called an activity-based costing system. It means that he could track costs in a hospital at a very granular level, accurately. Built into the administrative side of the system so we could drop an accurate bill and manage our cost of care. Was the idea behind it, still works today. Time-derived activity-based costing. And we use it routinely for every case. Well, Steve argued that the financial data in many instances reflected clinical decision-making. Every lab test was tracked by a specific type when it was performed. Every imaging exam, every dose of a drug, acuity-adjusted hour of nursing services, a minute in the procedure room, acuity-adjusted. Incredibly granular data. Steve had somehow got his hands on the variation literature, which was starting to emerge at that time. Now, most of that variation literature had to do with geographic variation. This was Jack Wenberg up at Dartmouth was kind of our pinnacle for it, or I don't know, our poster child, I guess. A lot of investigators at many different places taking a look, all showing similar findings. But Steve wanted to ask the question differently. He said, I get it. There's this massive geographic variation from place to place. More on that in a minute. I wonder if we treat patients the same in the same facility when they come in for treatment, for the same conditions. He wanted to push it a level deeper in the stack, you see. And his proposal was that we used his costing data or the clinical decisions reflected in his costing data to evaluate that. I complicated Steve's life immeasurably. The way I saw it, I was a trained clinical researcher and I thought pretty good at it. What we were doing was taking the tools of rigorous clinical research and swinging them to shine on, to focus on care delivery performance. That's what we were doing. We called them QUE studies. They had a particular study design. Well, in a two-year time period, we studied six clinical areas with high volumes of patients, high volumes of care within our system. Basic idea, we pulled all patients treated over a time period, typically a year. We checked to make sure the medicine hadn't changed, the science hadn't changed, so it was a stable environment. Yeah, where I complicated Steve's life. Hey, Steve, those things you have in your finance system, good start. There are lots of other things that clinicians think about that you're not tracking. I insisted that we form teams of physicians and nurses who actually perform the care as oversight groups, and we roughly doubled the number of factors we needed to track. Oh, got worse. Steve, those patients aren't all the same. They have different severity of presenting illness. They have different comorbid diseases. I insisted that we identify, extract, and individually stage all of those. If they had a complication, it would change their care. Needed that, too. And by the way, we do these things for a reason. I need to track long-term outcomes. And I took Steve's really simple analytic idea and turned it into some fairly expensive studies. It cost about $50,000 at the time. Almost all in chart abstraction with a carefully structured team of nurses. You have to do integrated reliabilities to extract all of that additional information. But in the end, we ended up, I believe, at least to this day, probably the most rigorous evaluation of variation at an individual patient level, I think, certainly than the, that was done at the time, still fares pretty well today, frankly, in terms of the design. We ended up with a, a group of patients that were statistically identical coming in and identical going out. That's what you ended up with, all right? Now, Intermountain, our hospitals, 
we ranged from big academic medical centers down through very small critical access rural facilities and everything in between. So some of what you're going to be seeing happened at big academic centers. So more on that in a minute. Short version, what we found was truly massive variation. When you drop within a facility to an individual patient level, the level of variation actually goes up compared to what you find on a geographic level. It's a higher level of variation at an individual patient level in the same facility. Here's just one illustration. The first thing we studied was transurethral prostatectomy. 16 high volume surgeons. Two of these are academic medical centers, by the way. 16 high volume surgeons. I analyzed the low volume guys separately. That's an interesting story for another day. Oh, by the way, I could break out the exact contribution of a resident, which was kind of fun on these cases. Um, these were two factors the surgeons themselves had identified as critical in performing that procedure. Neither were tracked in Busboom's financial system, just in passing. The little green squares show true surgical cut time from when they inserted their resecting neuroscope, started to cut to when they pulled it and said they were done. It's in the anesthesia notes. The little red circles are grams of prostatic tissue removed. And what I've done is array 16 high volume surgeons in order of grams per minute. So here to the left, I have physician M, 40 grams of tissue in 40 minutes, far right F, 90 minutes for 17 grams of tissue. Just to give you a sense of the variation, in terms of surgical cut times, it goes from a high of 90 minutes to a low of 38. Now that's a little bit more than a two and a half fold difference. Fairly impressive. Grams of tissue low of 13 grams to a high of 42, that's more than a three-fold difference. Oh, the crazy thing, when I first saw this, as somebody trained in surgery, it just flummoxed me. I didn't know how to make sense out of it. Who'd have thought? It turns out, very strong statistical result, but you can see it in the slide. The longer you operate, the less tissue you remove. There was a more important piece. The reason we laid it out this way, we discovered a major treatment failure. Now, this is done for for urinary obstruction, benign prostatic hypertrophy in elderly men, urinary obstruction, some of the men go on to reobstruct and require repeat operation. That was our primary measure of long-term treatment failures, was reoperation. Uh, turns out it, it concentrated in these three surgeons. Yeah, Hal Bourne, the chief of urology at our major academic center, um, Hal, found a fairly obscure article in the urology literature that established this relationship. Well, we validated it. You're actually looking at a clinical outcome. Our primary long-term clinical outcome, reoperation, directly associated. By the way, we tracked it down. It relates to surgical technique. There's a particular element in surgical technique that I can go into later if you'd like. But it resulted in real change. Well, yeah, clinical impact. Well, we had all the financial data too. We'd started with Steve's financial system. So pull out about half of the 90 items we tracked that had a cost associated with them. So this is true cost. This is not some sort of cost to charge ratio. This is true legitimate cost, normed out against actual budgets. Yeah, Ann was spending 1,164 hospital dollars to get a good outcome on a standard case. Uh, H was high, $2,233. Same patient, same outcome, twice as much resource. Which was fairly impressive, you see? Very long story short, we started to use these data not to say who was good or who was bad as a surgeon, but to say what is best care across a professional group. 
You see that idea? In fact, the reason for that, this is a summary slide. It summarizes about 45 factors. We'll break them out. Take a look at the individual factors and you'll find the most interesting thing. There was never a single instance in any of the areas we studied where one physician was consistently good or consistently bad. I mean consistently high or consistently low. See this guy who's so low, M? On average, he was very efficient. He had three or four things where he was actually the worst guy in the group. See the person so high, H? On average, he was a real heavy utilizer. He had a couple of things where he was the best guy in the group. And if you looked at the detailed data for any length of time at all, you walked away convinced it wasn't a matter of choosing the best physician. The best care for a patient almost certainly extended across the group. Every one of these men, they all happened to be men, had a little something to teach and a little something to learn. And instead of an exercise of who to blame, or who was good versus who was bad, it quickly became a professional exercise about what is best. Frankly, one of the key factors that pulls us together as professionals. A very, very different way of approaching. See the idea? A very long story short in every area we studied, we showed fairly substantial improvements in clinical outcomes. Our reoperations went away, for example. And the crazy one, at the time this was so counterintuitive, our cost of operation fell. Well, let me get this straight, higher quality, lower cost, now, this was in 1987 when we were analyzing the data. At that point in time, that just went against all received medical wisdom. Quality meant you spent more, by definition. And then, of course, I stumbled into a little bit of luck. There was a statistician in industry who had developed a theory, a guy named W. Edwards Deming, who had a theory that predicted what we were seeing and our clinical research fitted almost perfectly. That's where I met Dr. Deming. I'm one of the last guys you're likely to meet who actually learned quality theory from Deming. And we brought it home and started to apply it in other areas, many other areas. Uh, well, post-operative deep wound infections was one of the first and then a long list and holy cow, every time. We were able to show that better clinical outcomes were driving lower costs of operations, just as Deming said it would. So we proved it up in healthcare and it started to become a major way forward. It's the funniest thing. I was kind of a, a man without a, a home in one sense. You know, there was a very strong tribal relationship between administration and medical staff, quite a chasm between them, a formalized method of communication at the time. I hadn't realized I was going to the dark side over with administration. When I went over there, and I, I don't know, got some strange looks from my colleagues in medicine. Uh, but let me tell you, to the administrators, I was a physician still, clearly coming across the line. Um, most of my real relationships were on the medical staff side still, that professional viewpoint. But it's the funniest thing, you're standing in the chasm. When I would present one of these studies to a group of, of clinicians, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, I'd emphasize the clinical outcomes. <laughs> and show how it worked clinically. Uh, we had a lot of fun with it. And then I'd kind of throw in, just as an add-on, oh, by the way, the money got better, the cost got better, and they were okay with that, so long as I didn't dwell on it. Then I'd take the same study to a room full of administrators. What do you think I emphasize for them? The money. 
Uh, and then I'd kind of throw in, you know, our clinical outcomes got better, and they appeared to really like that as long as I didn't dwell on it. You see? And it was the same study. Now, it turns out this is part of a larger literature. I just want to review this with you really quickly. Again, this is a slide I prepared for Senate Finance. If you were to do a Medline search right now, looking in peer-reviewed journals, articles on variation in care, it's about a 50-year-old literature now, but current today, you still get a fairly, fairly good bit of publication within it. You'd roll out over 50,000 articles, having done the search. Um, amazingly consistent in findings. But I broke it out into five subcategories, and I want to review them very quickly. But I want you to think of it in a particular way, what I believe to be the correct way. It's actually pretty easy to make the case that care delivery today is the best the world has ever seen. Um, easy to make the case that people alive today get better health care and better health than any previous generation of people living on this planet. If you look at it in a particular way, I can also make a compelling argument that care delivery in the United States is the best in the world. Europeans show longer life expectancy. This was a National Research Council evidence review actually a few years ago. It's primarily healthier behaviors and better public health. But when you go head to head around specific clinical entities with careful measurement, the United States tends to outperform the rest of the world. Easy case to make, but, but here's the thought. It's the duty of every generation of the healing professions to pass along something better than we ourselves received. This is a research commitment that underlies any good clinical practice at one level, that we improve what we received, that we make our profession and our service to the patients we treat better moving ahead. See that idea? Well, the first step in doing that is to understand where you fall short. What I'm doing is swinging the focus off traditional medical research onto this idea of care delivery performance. Applying good research methods to care delivery performance, that's what I'm doing. And then saying, okay, in care delivery performance, what are the opportunities? That's the right way to think about this list. The truth is, is I shared it with a bunch of politicians and some of them started to go out on the stump and talk about healthcare being broken. But you know, for something to be broken, somewhere, sometime, it had to work correctly. I mean, it's working, then it breaks, and then it's broken. You can't find an example of it working correctly, not just in the US, but around the world. And it seems to me then it's not a bill of indictment, it's a list of opportunities. So I need you to think of it that way. People are figuring this out, and they're creating a new world, a far better world than we ourselves received. Well, five main areas, top of the list, this idea of geographic variation extended down to the level of patients in a single hospital. So general variation in care. The way that Jack said it is he said geography is destiny. You know that where you are when you get care is far more important than when you, whether you have insurance and determine the care you'll actually receive. That's a major finding within this body of research. Interestingly, if you break out just major academic medical centers, the levels of variation are similar across major academic medical centers as they are in the system as a whole. Uh, it also applies in Europe, but that was the first problem. The real extension of it, the care was so variable that it's pretty much physically impossible that all patients, even with full access to care, could possibly be receiving good care. The variation was just too high for that hypothesis to, to stand. Now, the second thing on the list, uh, some of our colleagues 
medical colleagues said, well, well, maybe we can explain geographic variation by inappropriate care. When they said inappropriate care, it was a technical definition based upon medical risks. Care was judged inappropriate if the risk inherent in a treatment outweighed any potential clinical benefit to the patient. This in a profession that holds as our primary maxim, first do no harm. These would be areas where we put patients actively in harm's way. All right, a clear violation of a core professional standard. Well, they developed formal tools for doing this. If I had a poster child for this, it'd be Bob Brook, senior uh, uh, professor of internal medicine at UCLA, but the chief medical officer at RAND. Uh, Mark Chasson, who now runs the Joint Commission, got his start here, Lucian Leap, got his start here, quite a number of very respected researchers. Well, they developed formal methods. They come back to measure two findings. The first is, is that um, inappropriate care does not explain geographic variation. Low utilization communities from a geographic viewpoint had about the same proportion of care judged clinically inappropriate on average as did high utilization communities. By the way, the implication of this is we miss on both sides of the line. It's not just that we overtreat, we undertreat. But that was the second finding, overtreatment. For some major treatments routinely performed, well, in this case, in US hospitals where the studies were done, high watermark in the initial batch was 32% of all carotid and arterectomies performed judged to be clinically inappropriate on careful review by one's peers. The risk outweighed any potential benefit. It should never have been undertaken. But we did it anyway, you see. If you think number one was challenging, number two overshadowed it completely. By the way, you get, well, it's very controversial. Something like the COURAGE trial suggests that 50% of all cardiac stenting is clinically inappropriate. So 32% may not be the high watermark after all. And as you might imagine, it's a very, very, very contentious, very, very controversial area of research as we examine our methods and our service as a health profession. Number three on the list, November 30th, 1998, Institute of Medicine's Committee on Quality of Healthcare in America published a report called the Air is Human. You're familiar with it. That's where we estimated between 44 and 98,000 preventable deaths per year in hospitals where the cause of death was not the patient's underlying disease, but the treatments we used to address those diseases in a way that in each case, two independent separate physician reviewers was agreed was avoidable, unavoidable death. We knew we were being conservative, truth in advertising. I was on that committee. We'd done an evidence review. We found about 60 major articles. Believe it or not, we were trying to be conservative and we knew we were. Some years later, I participated in another trial that we published. That's the one that some folks at Hopkins across town used to say, no, the real number is about 200,000 preventable deaths per year, which is probably much closer to the truth. In that study, using a more sensitive instrument, we concluded that 26% of hospitalized patients had at least one care-associated injury during their index hospitalization, probably a quarter of all patients. But these were much more common than we initially thought. You know, it provoked all sorts of controversy. If I were taking the time, I'd have to hedge it about the care we deliver is innately dangerous. The gain we achieve is dramatically larger than the harm, by the way. Net of this, we add three and a half to seven years of life expectancy to every member of US society on average. The upside is way bigger than the downside. It's a very thin line between help and harm. It's almost physically impossible in some cases to avoid stepping over it. Um, most people didn't read the second half of the report. That was the frustrating part. 
what we pointed out is that for some major subcategories of patient injuries, we had reputable science, proven methods by which you could dramatically drop the injury rates and not lose any of the benefit. That was the point of the report, that it was a huge opportunity for better care. I guess nobody ever reads a whole IOM report except the people who write it. Um, but I wish more people had read the second half. That we knew how to fix this if we chose to. Number four, we called them injuries of omission. This was a second follow-on IOM committee. So this is circumstances where I have hard evidence of benefit, usually strong randomized controlled trial data. Uh, they tend to be non-controversial. Uh, and people went back to assess for things that we know work, that we all agree should happen, how reliably do we execute? It's called high reliability. How good are we at making it happen every time it should happen? Short version, Beth Mulgin's work out of RAND. For adults, we managed to get it right about 55% of the time. For children, 46% of the time. Which was kind of distressing, disappointing. Yeah, we, we only execute correctly about half the time. Here's the way to think about it. It's easy to make the case that we routinely achieve miracles. If I can achieve a miracle doing it correctly half the time, what kind of miracles could I achieve if I did it correctly all the time or something close to all the time? It means we're leaving a lot of lives and a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of function on the table. It means that we could be much, much better at what we do from a performance level if we were more careful about how we delivered care. You know, it's the craziest thing. I grew up in this system too, guys. When I was doing research, I had a particular way of thinking about my research. It was rigorous. It had a set of really clear standards. It was usually done as groups. But when I came to actually deliver care to real patients, it was as if I tossed that all out. And when we took that spotlight of rigorous research methods and shined it over on the performance, holy cow, there were huge opportunities we were failing our patients on a regular basis in the finest institutions. We could be much better. Now, when you roll it all up, it comes down to waste. Uh, in 2010, another IOM report, we used Deming's models of waste. You need to know they're very generic. That's where we concluded that a minimum of 35% and probably over 50% of all money spent on healthcare in the United States today is waste from a patient's perspective, non-value adding. Wait a minute, this year the United States will spend $3.4 trillion on healthcare delivery, just under $10,000 per person in our country on this grand enterprise of which we're all a part. I'm suggesting that probably, oh, 1.7 trillion of that is recoverable waste. Now I really believe that. I'll come back and show you why I believe it in a minute. When I model it, by the way, I'm one of the crazies that's at the upper fringe. I get closer to 70% waste, is what I get. Now I tend to be a little bit more specific than the IOM report was. Huge financial upside, a takeaway, a takeaway. It turns out that the financial opportunity on the waste side is dramatically more than anything this institution can do by increasing revenues, by adding services, by bringing in new technologies, dramatically more, and will have a bigger health impact. And I argue, at least at the present time, that any thoughtful physician, any thoughtful clinical leader 
any smart, financially driven administrator ought to be focusing on the wayside. And it emerges from this literature is where it comes from. That's where your real opportunity is. It dwarfs anything on the other side. Some years ago, a report actually came out of Europe, but they suggested that here in the United States, we could get as much benefits to patients if we could just deploy consistently what we know today would produce more benefit to patients than the next 30 years of NIH-funded biomedical research. And it's credible. When you look at the current systems-level performance of these organizations of which we're a part, see the idea? The next thing that happened was just a dumb luck. I was actually looking for a new study design to better measure variation. The reason there were only six things on my QUE study list is we ran out of areas where I had a sufficient volume of patients per physician within a reasonable length of time to use this expensive statistical approach. Um, it happened in a big trial that we were running. It was led by Dr. Alan Morris at LDS Hospital in 1991. NIH-funded randomized controlled trial. We'd just come out of the ECMO trial for ARDS where we tried a particular form of an artificial lung, ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. For <clears throat> seriously ill ARDS patients, you put a large diameter tube into their femoral artery, circulate their blood out of their body, roller pump, you just rolled it down from surgery, you bypass pump. In the pump, you ran it through a membrane oxygenator, the outflow went into the femoral vein. And the idea is, is that you could extracorporeally oxygenate the patient's blood, you could slow or stop respiration, give the lungs a chance to recover, break what we thought was a re-injury cycle. Turned out it didn't work for adults. We were one of the participants in the ECMO trial. Didn't work out. Well, shortly after, ECMO showed that this mechanism, the trial, showed that this mechanism didn't work for adults. By the way, it does work for neonates. Um, a group of, of researchers in Italy, intensive medicine specialists, they usually met in Milan, so they were called the Milan Group, Northern Italy. They came up with a modification of ECMO. Two main changes. They pointed out that most of the problems with ECMO came on the high-pressure side of the system, which makes sense with that arterial catheter. They had a little implantable surgical device you'd implant into the femoral vein down in the groin, two entry ports in it. Through one, you'd insert a tube into the inferior vena cava, thread it up to about the, the level of the renal vein, and they argued that you were extracting desaturated venous blood as opposed to arterial blood that the patient's body had already tried to oxygenate. So you had more gas space. You could add more, more oxygen. So that was the first change. The second change, in the pump, they ran the blood through a CO2 scrubber before the membrane oxygenator. So a more physiologic artificial lung. Uh, and also, by removing CO2, you had more gas space still. So way ahead. The outflow, that tube went through the same little implanted device into the, into the femoral vein, then up into the vena cava, but then threaded all the way up high, close to the right atrium to dump out that oxygen-rich blood right before it hit the right heart. See the idea? Then you counted on blood flow in the vena cava to keep the two circuits separate. That treated three or four patients and not actually killed anybody directly. So a quick question. Does a complete lack of any efficacy data, has that ever stopped a red-blooded American physician from, from trying a new technology, especially if it's kind of cool? And the answer is no. So lots of places across the United States were adopting this technology with no evidence of benefit. That's a really common story, by the way, within our profession. Well, Alan got the grant from National Heart Lung Blood to run a randomized controlled trial of this therapy. 
So we're putting together a trial, our treatment arm. We call it ECOR, extracorporeal CO2 removal, the new Italian artificial lung control arm standard ventilator management. When a question came up, somebody asked the question, gee, I wonder if uh, academic intensivist managed ventilators the same. Now to this point, it was always kind of assumed that they did. Some of the finest physiologic data we have in all of medicine. These are all top end academicians. We went back and measured. We went to see if we could predict ventilator settings from the patient's physiologic data. What we quickly discovered was massive variation across the eight intensivists in our level one trauma unit, shock trauma respiratory ICU, Terry Clemmer's unit that Alan Morris practiced medicine within, uh, which was kind of troubling, but not totally unexpected by that point. Alan actually carried a step further. This is the first time among many that we showed significant variation <laughs> Same physician, same patient, morning to night rounds. We were able to show significant practice variation within a single physician. Well, within every physician is the accurate way of saying that. It turned out to key around complexity. There's a literature that says that the most number of factors that an expert mind can consider when making a decision, a physician making a clinical decision about ventilator setting, for example, well, Miller's root study in 1956, there's a chain coming out of that, said five to nine. And we counted up in terms of classes of, of physiologic data you should consider that had legitimate, legitimate impact, about 40. And 40 is more than nine, you see. In fact, if you worked it backwards and just assumed that every time that expert physician was seeing the patient, they were subconsciously and apparently at random selecting six or seven or eight factors to optimize, tried to work it backwards, you could figure out which factors they'd used by looking at their ventilator settings, which was kind of cool. Now, of course, this is death in a trial. You understand that about trial design. It has to do with internal validity. I can't causally link treatment to outcome if I don't deliver the care in a consistent way. That is why we use protocols in the arms of trials. And so we knew that we needed a protocol for ventilator management. Well, we set out to build the protocol. We needed to create a protocol. We were tremendously naive. We thought, hey, this is ventilation, some of the finest data we have in all of medicine. We'll just go to the literature, find the answers, codify it, make it available. The trouble is, as it turns out, we could find evidence for best practice about 20% of the time. Oh, oh, that's if we accepted a level three evidentiary standard. Level one is randomized controlled trials. Level two is strong observational designs, case control studies, quasi-experiments, case series. Level three is expert consensus opinion using formal methods in a published form. You need to know that this is generally true. It's been examined across the house of medicine. We have evidence for best practice about 15 to 20% of the time. Sometimes it's much better. Um, Pediatric oncology, I think, is one of our best. I, I personally believe, without data, that it's about 50%. On the other hand, general pediatrics, really close to zero. Where I work, general surgery, really close to zero. Ophthalmology, really close to zero. See the problem? Um, that means that physicians and nurses can hold legitimate differences of opinion about what's best because there is no evidence. And we do. Produces variation. Well, we had our own answer. Let's generate our own level three evidence. Alan did it correctly. He used ARDSnet here in the US. So 16 big academic centers that studied this disease together got the top experts across ARDSnets to help. 
we involved the Europeans too, including the Italians, who developed the E-Corps machine. Um, took him about a year to develop, but I still regard to this day as probably the finest evidence-based best practice guideline I've ever seen in my life. Alan is nothing if not thorough. It was a flow chart about 40 pages long. It averaged over 20 decision nodes per page, over 840 explicit recommendations on exactly how you set a ventilator based upon a patient's physiologic data. He did like the expert mind does. He broke it out in subcategories. So he talked about end expiratory pressure and tidal volumes and respiratory rates and oxygen concentrations. And you track down through this branching logic and it say, set the ventilator here, right? Now, the trouble with expert consensus, the guy who did the work was Stanford's David Eddy, who technically is the father of evidence-based medicine, by the way, published his first article using that, that title, the first in the world, in 1990, about five years before Sackett started to broadly popularize it, all right? Eddy investigated this, a short version, I'll show you the data if you'd like, what it does is completely destroy any faith you may have ever had in expert consensus opinion as a means to identify best practice. It turns out it appears to be a random function in terms of what the experts delay. Has to do with estimating rates in your head. The expert mind we know is a really good pattern matcher. Um, for example, when you're doing diagnosis, we're almost magical. But when you ask an expert mind to assess rates across a population, across a group over time, um, we anchor, we get dominated by two or three recent cases, or if we had a particularly spectacular case in our distant past, good or bad, that becomes our lifetime experience. There's a surprisingly robust literature showing that we're just no good at that. The human mind is not built for that purpose. And we get it wrong and we're biased. Well, there's a third problem. It has to do with how you deploy the guidelines. When guidelines first became popular back in the 90s, that's when most of these studies appeared. Short version again, if you prepare a guideline, the typical way we've done it is we prepare it, we write an article about it, then we try to load it into the expert mind and expect those clinicians to apply it from memory. So we train you in the guideline. You read the article, maybe we have grand rounds. Now what that literature shows is if you go back and ask the clinicians, the physicians and nurses, was this a valuable experience? You get a very positive response on average. People really enjoy it. They think it was professionally satisfying. They learned a lot. If you ask them, did you change your practice, nearly all of them will say that they did in significant ways. The wheels come off when you measure whether they changed their practice. And there's a consistent finding across this literature that shows no change in practice. So watch out when you're reading this in the literature, if they're asking the clinicians what they thought, if they're saying, did you in your opinion change your practice? No, nah, neither of those count. You gotta measure whether there was an actual change. And that's where it all falls apart. See the idea? I throw in a fourth because I think it's gonna turn out to be really important. Anybody who's treated patients who's actually practiced medicine or nursing has lived this, I don't think any two of us are exactly the same. You know, I practice general surgery. I've never done a laparoscopic case just to date myself. Uh, I jokingly say it's been, I maintain my license. That's mostly a statement about the limitations of the Department of Professional Licensing, at least in Utah. Um, but it's been 30 years since I really practiced medicine, all right? Um, so I've never done a laparoscopic case, but when I was doing it with open, open work, if I were in your peritoneum, you would all have small anatomic differences. Wait a minute, sometimes dramatically large. 
no two patients are ever exactly the same. You know that. I know that. This has an implication. I'll show you why I believe it in a minute. I'll show you the data a little bit. I don't think you can write a guideline that perfectly fits any patient, with some rare exceptions. Now, there are exceptions, but they're rare. I don't think you can write a guideline that perfectly fits any patient. And I think any clinician has lived that little truth. And so that's a very important one to put into. Yeah, the real clever part came with how Alan used his guideline when he had it done. The way he said this that I'm showing you, he said, wait a minute. He said, I have no validation data for this guideline. Sure, it's expert consensus, but I don't have any validation data. He was thinking about it correctly from a research standpoint. Um, I don't know of the guidelines that we receive through our professional societies, through HRQ, through EPCs, through the Cochrane Collaborative, how many of them come with validation data? If you guess essentially none, you've got it about right. Most of them don't. It's opinion. Therefore, he chose to use it in a really clever way. Um, yeah. Now, technically, it's lean. It's a form of quality theory called lean on steroids, technically. All right? It turns out, though, it fits the language of medicine pretty much perfectly. Yeah. This shows what happened when they did it. So the basic structure, they had the guideline, but they said to the, the physicians, they said, look, guys, I know you're a top-end physician. You're at a major academic center. You have the reputation that goes with that. You're truly a master at the knowledge and skills that make us what we are in the healing professions. I'm not so sure about the guideline. <laughs> not sure, but so sure about the protocol. What he saw was as a tuning process. He said, look, if you ever have a circumstance where the guideline says to set the ventilator thus and you just disagree with it, you don't think it's best patient care, on a whim, you can choose to do it differently. But what they did was track every time somebody varied. Oh, wait a minute. This turned out to be the most efficient variance tracking system I've ever found. Wow, it was good at measuring variance at a detailed level. Far more effective than my QUE methodology. You just track every variance from a standard baseline, you see? And of course, they didn't stop there. Anytime somebody varied, they followed up on it. They made it the, the subject of every Thursday afternoon they met for an hour as a group of, well, physicians, nurses, the respiratory techs. And they'd examine those circumstances where somebody had varied. Their working assumption is that the guideline was probably wrong and it had failed to support an experienced clinician adequately. This shows what happened when they did that. First patient they tried it on was patient number 29 in the series of ventilated ARDS patients they were tracking. They followed the guideline instructions 41% of the time. More than half of the time, those experienced clinicians varied from the guideline. Four months, eight patients later, they first went over 90% compliance. Now, first big takeaway you need to hear. In those four months, they put more than 125 changes into the guideline. I need to say this a particular way. Still to this day, this is probably one of the finest evidence-based best practice guidelines I've seen in my life. But that abstract document created in conference rooms changed dramatically when it hit reality at a patient's bedside. How do you tune your guidelines to reality? I've got more than 100 of these, well over 100. Every one of them has shown the same phenomenon. 
there is a difference between thinking in a conference room, theory, abstraction, and reality. Good care is reality-based. And you have to tune to reality. You have to have a mechanism for doing that. Of course, if you're doing that, you also get validation data just in passing out of these things. Oh, the second thing, count for me the number of cases where they followed 100% of the guideline instructions. You'll notice it is zero. This particular protocol then went across ArdsNet and then out to a couple of hundred different big ICUs around the world. They managed to automate it on a PC. It's had thousands of patients through it. To my knowledge, they have yet to have a single patient where they've been able to follow 100% of the guideline instructions. Again, a common finding in well over 100 of these that we run. That's empiric validation of the statement I made earlier. I don't think you can write a guideline that perfectly fits any patient. I really don't. Across ours and Intermountain, we have about a 5 to 15% variance rate. See the idea? We call them shared baselines. And we started to use them heavily. Here's why. In the original ECMO trial, using the guideline, now technically we were evaluating the new Italian artificial lung. Um, what happened though in our control arm is survival improved from 9.5% to 44%. We saw more than a four and a half fold improvement in survival rates. First time since ARDS was defined as a syndrome that anybody had shown a major improvement in survival just in passing. Uh, across about 30 years, it was defined back in the 60s. Um, of course, we then validated this across ArtsNet to show that it was a real effect. A dramatic improvement in clinical outcomes. And by that point, we expected the cost to fall. They fell by about 25%. Interestingly, physician time fell as well. Well, we started to use the same idea on other things. We call them shared baselines, and this is what I really wanted you to see. We use them very broadly within our system today. So here's how a shared baseline works. You identify a high priority clinical process. There's a technical method for that called key process analysis. Um, you then build an evidence-based best practice protocol. I use protocol because for us, this grew out of the arms of a trial. It was old home week for a lot of us who are trial statisticians or trial physicians. Um, now, by definition, the thing's always imperfect, and I showed you why. Poor evidence, unreliable consensus, all these problems with it. But you only have to come close. You just have to be close enough. The next two steps are the heavies, the hard ones, three and four. The next thing you do is you blend it into clinical workflow so that it doesn't rely on human memory. That expert craftsman model of practice where you load all the information into the physician mind, the nurse mind, and then expect them to apply it to recall. What we know from the evidence is if you do that at our current level of complexity, you'll get about 50% performance. Well, don't do it that way. Build it into the workflow. Well, doctor, be absolutely lazy. Call it in. Don't even bother to show up. Leave it on full automatic. What you'll get is evidence-based best practice on full automatic. This has an interesting secondary consequence. It allows your most important resource, the trained expert mind, to focus on those relatively narrow areas where you make a real difference. You don't have to bird dog every little step. See the idea? Now, we nearly always started on paper because paper supports a high rate of change better than EMRs, electronic medical records. Then in a fairly short period of time, we'll be shifting that into our EMR. 
I recently was forced to compile the tools we use. I've got about 20 little tools to build it into the MR. The most common is a standing order set. Second most common is a clinical flow sheet, something called action list, patient worksheets. There's just a list of them. But again, basic idea, full automatic, you're gonna get evidence-based best care, and it's reliable. Again, it frees your most important resource, a trained expert mind, to focus on the things that matter. Sometimes we call that top of license, is the idea. Now, side by side with the workflow, build in data. You actually build the data along the process. There's a formal method for doing it, all right? It comes from the way that you design data systems for randomized controlled trials, is where it was actually derived. You're gonna track two classes of information. The first is protocol variations. So I mentioned that earlier. The second though is you have to know what happened to the patient. So technically intermediate and final clinical cost satisfaction outcomes. Uh, usually intermediate outcomes are process steps. Final outcomes are just what you'd expect. So the way I see it inside Intermountain, when we get the EMR humming, we have this working in quite a number of areas. As you care for the patient, that EMR is organizing the data, giving you clinical decision support as you care for the patient. But at the same time, you're capturing the necessary information at point of care. Most of our big registries, we have about 60 of them, are updated in real time. They're accurate within a day. But their primary purpose is care delivery performance. You see the idea? Yeah, now of course, step five is the fun one. Once I've got this set up, the way I say it to my colleagues in Intermountain, in my role there, I say, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just that we allow or even that we encourage, we demand that you vary based on individual patient need. You will get as much scrutiny for complying with one of our protocols too much compared to your peers as for complying too little. What I'm looking for is where you're different from your peers. If you're different, either we have something to teach you or you have something to teach us. You'd be surprised how often it's the second. But you're seeking best care across a group by making the care transparent to the clinicians involved. What you did was take the methods of research and just swing it over to care delivery performance. The same things that we know work on our research career, turns out works on our care delivery career too. A fairly simple idea, frankly. And then of course you feed the data back and technically what's called the lean learning loop. Now, yeah, just another quick example. Turns out that a few years ago, the number one cause of preventable death, well, death in general, in typical hospitals was a sepsis, body-wide infections. So more than half of those cases enter your hospital through your emergency department. A guy named Todd Allen in the ED, the ED is the blue line, by the way. Terry Clemmer in our ICU system, um, they started to hammer out an evidence-based best practice protocol for ED sepsis. Very aggressive detection and treatment. Um, yeah, the green line shows overall compliance to the whole document. Now they were slower. They took about four years to tune this thing, which is actually more typical in many ways. Some are really fast, some are slower. It depends on how much resource you put into it. It depends upon the nature of the underlying science. But they went from about 30% compliance up to about, today it runs at about 95. Um, it's got some interesting features in it. Uh, yeah, nationwide mortality for these these patients runs about 20%, best case, 20 to 50%. When we started, we were among the best in the country. We had a 20.2% mortality rate. It's now been uh, almost five years since we last went over 10%. It averages 8.1%. 
Now here's the funny thing. I've got seven or eight of those where we've set a new national standard for care. Not just ARDS, not just post-operative deep wound infection, just a whole series of them. Early lactam inductions, just a series of them. The crazy thing is, is in almost every circumstance, we're among the best in the country when we started. But it turns out that we as a profession were falling short of our theoretic potential. And you close the gap, you see? Yeah, this one's only about 125 lives per year. So a few takeaways. If I actually start to tally it up in Intermountain, I can document well north of 2,000 lives per year of people who a few years ago would have died who don't today. And I'm not talking some sort of general, you know, standardized mortality ratio. I'm talking specific clinical investigations where I have credible data about a significant change in mortality rates that I can put down to real lives. And you understand that mortality is the tip of the iceberg. Dramatically bigger impact in terms of function restored suffering averted. I like to say it this way, in, in this profession we count our successes in lives, literally. We could be much better in the services we deliver to our patients if we organized ourselves a little bit differently, if we applied proven methods from other parts of our lives to our care delivery performance, we could be much better. The conclusion is inescapable. Turns out it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, I won't go through the detailed financial data. Uh, I'll show you a little bit more about that as I wrap up. I skipped one though. This is the one that I really wanted to show you. I think I was trained in the method as a surgery resident back in the 70s. I've been thinking about this. I was taught that when I did a case, I always did it the same way. It's kind of pounded into my soul, frankly. In many of those cases, I expected to reach my hand back, have the scrub tech slap the right into my hand. I'd go through some of them with hardly a word being said. It made me faster, which was important. It means I didn't forget things. I could build memory into the workflow. You see, and frankly, in a major procedure, if something goes seriously south, it gets exciting. It's good to know where everything is. I think I was trained in this method. Now in 1990, when Womack published his book, The Machine That Changed the World, he claimed that Lean had invented this. That is not true. I watched my colleagues in internal medicine will have a standard workup for chest pain. See the idea? So the real thing, I, I don't think there's anything new here, except one idea. Well, let me ask you, internal medicine service at this facility what happens when the attending changes? Does the care still all change like it did back when I was in training? Help me understand that, guys. We claim to be clinical scientists. How could that possibly hold true? It implies that we are clueless about what actually works in routine care delivery. How could you possibly justify that as a clinical scientist? I've got a model. It turns out that in, in my presence, the physical parameters of the universe change. So the antibiotics that work for the other guy were best or no longer best with me present. A different set it changes the performance of antibiotics, for example, right? That would explain it. How else could you explain it? See that idea? It turns out that's the one difference. Are you willing to be part of a professional team? In a shared clinical environment, am I willing to build a shared baseline approach? Now, we know that all patients are different. 
you still have to vary. Literally in our system, you'll get as much scrutiny for complying with one of our protocols too much as for complying too little. You still have to vary, but what if you vary it around a shared baseline? That's the only new idea here. The only new idea. I say it should have started in medicine. Actually, it did start in medicine. Uh, if you track back, we had this going for at least 70 years before the lean guys popped up and said they'd invented it. So this is ours. This is old home week. It does save money. Just one last idea. A few years ago, our CFO got excited. You know, we're all over quality. He said, you know, without access to care, quality is pretty much meaningless. People can't afford our care. It makes no difference. And he said accessible means affordable. So he set a goal for us. His goal was is that we would limit our rate increases to the communities we serve. Now we're about 60% of all care in that region of the United States. And we function more like a public system just because of our size. He said, I want you to keep rate increases of our burden on the community, consumer price index inflation plus 1%. He doesn't like it when I say GDP minus one, GDP minus two. It means that the cost of healthcare would decline over time. All right. Now, Utah is growing. We have a fair bit of in-migration. Um, we also have a lot of local births. So our populations are growing at a fairly steep rate, one of the highest in the United States. Uh, we also have some major demographic shifts, baby boom hitting chronic disease years, obesity, similar sorts of things. And lastly, new technologies. This was a very conservative estimate of Intermountain's growth curve given those factors. Well, if we were gonna hit CPI plus one, that's where we had to be. It meant that by the end of last year, we needed to take $728 million out of our cost of operations. That's 13% of our cost of operations, a fairly steep task. Uh, here's the first four years. Not from me, but from our finance department, which means the administrative guys actually believe it. Through the end of 2015, I'm still waiting for the 16 data, just in passing. Should be ready any time now would take out $688 million. We hit the 13% mark at the end of last year. Every dollar of that I can track back to a clinical improvement project. Again, this is not some sort of a generic general measure. Every dollar of it to a specific group of physicians and nurses leading clinical change, producing better clinical outcomes and reducing the cost of care. I personally think that that's my financial salvation. <laughs> In fact, we were all in on the exchanges. We thought it met our mission better. Uh, currently, the federal government owes Intermountain $420 million in what are called risk order payments that they haven't paid. We would be seriously hurting except for our clinical improvement. And so we came through last year still looking pretty good. While a lot of other institutions, Anderson, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo, have been taking some serious, serious hits. But we dodged those hits because we understood how to manage care on a clinical service down at the patient's bedside. Because we'd taken that step forward as a profession to actually work as a team. Perhaps a new definition of team. Just in passing, last year we also published, as Chance would have it, 399 articles in peer-reviewed uh, journals. Technically, as a system, we're really a community-based system. We've got a couple of those big academic centers, but technically, we're a community-based system. We are producing more translational research than any other university that I know of. But we run it off the registries. 
It turns out that structure I showed you is a wonderful research tool. The way I think of it is that every patient that we treat should go on trial. And we're getting pretty close, where it's possible to learn from every patient by the way that we've structured our system. Patient care always comes first, but if you get it right, then your ability to learn from what you do just dramatically goes up, which is another fun topic to talk about. Key to it all is process management. Better clinical results produce lower costs under fee-for-value payment. Those savings go back to your own bottom line. You know, the reason I was asking you about how you're paid here, you're already budgeted on a global budget, so for your hospital side, you'll get the savings. This could make a real difference to your institution. Physician payment side, you know, you'd have some things to still work out. Yeah, more than half of all the cost savings will take the form of unused capacity. It's called fixed costs. It'll be balanced by increasing demand in each state of the union, particularly with the demographic shifts that are going on. And there you have it, guys. That's what I wanted to show to you, hopefully without taking up too much time. Um, the key takeaway, it's the duty of every generation of the healing professions to take the next step forward to be better, to give better than we ourselves received. We have a set of methods that make that dramatically possible. And I think it becomes an agenda, a vision, a target for any, any strong professional care delivery group in the country, especially a university. So I'll close with that. Comments, questions, thoughts, ideas, challenges referred to. My guess is you're already doing some of this at some level. What are your thoughts? Yes, right here and then. Why can't Marco. we take your findings and implement them here as part of the process of making sure our experts agree and go through the whole consensus process and learn for themselves? What I'd recommend to you, we actually published, we call them care process models. They're available on our external website. Uh, what I know is, is to really um, implement them here, your circumstances will be different, your culture will be a little different, uh, you'll have to adapt them. But, you know, I do the same. If I'm starting on a new one, I go steal whatever my colleagues are willing to share. I guess that's not stealing, but you don't want to start from zero ever. Uh, but yeah, use it. Use it for heaven's sakes. Um, there's now quite a number of different groups who are doing this. It's clearly not just an Intermountain, by the way. There are quite a number of groups who are doing this quite successfully. And I think we're, we're becoming convinced that it, it moves out pretty nicely. In fact, I've had two groups, one of them back at Harvard, who've stolen the method and renamed it and claimed to have invented it, which I personally deeply appreciate. You know, it's, it's the best you, honor you can get if, if, somebody, if somebody tries to rename it and use it. So. But, there you go, the, the, the most sincere form of flattery. <laughs> Other comments or questions, guys? Yes, sir. I find that fascinating, and I think that's what we need to do, but I ask a question. If we could manage things like diabetes, um, obesity, lack of exercise, do you think that we'd make an even bigger impact on our community by having these diseases in the first place? I do actually, so I, I didn't choose to use it. But some years ago we ran a trial, technically a step wedge trial in our system of um, type two diabetes mellitus, mostly in the elderly population. We insisted on at least three significant comorbid diseases. 
It had to do with what we call a level one uh, patient-centered medical home, chronic disease management embedded in our primary care clinics. We're actually up to about 200 of them now, 200 clinics. What we showed was is that two years in this high-risk population, our uh, survival rates increased from 83 to 87 percent, a significant improvement in survival. We showed that physician productivity increased by 8 percent, uh, which was enough to pay for the care management nurses. By the way, the insurers weren't paying for them. Uh, but we showed a two-year hospitalization rate of 39% falling to 31, which was where the real money was. Um, so we published that. In the years since, we came to a level two, we call it mental health integration, especially depression, and you can build that into primary care. And then last summer in JAMA, we called the third level team-based care, where you add in mostly social workers, some palliative care folks, some geriatricians to help with coordinating community resources for patients with chronic disease. The key takeaway on that is it shows dramatic drops in utilization at ED level, hospital level. Uh, we showed that it costs us across about 200,000 patients, $22 per patient per year to deploy the thing. It reduced medical utilization by $115 per patient per year. So about a, a five to one return on investment, which we thought was pretty good. So you're absolutely correct, but we showed that across a wide array of chronic diseases. Now those are called in QI theory, they're called move upstream strategies. Um, you move up and try to prevent the need downstream, so better care, lower costs, right? And that's, we're, we're betting heavily on that one. Uh, you're next, is that okay, and then you're next? Yeah, one quick question, if you could just elaborate on sort of the, the nuances or the difficulty challenges in creating your activity-based cost accounting. Is it simply taking the hospital cost accounting system, or how do you really define the association with the workflow process yeah. to make those characterization of financial variance? So do you currently drop a bill, a detailed bill? So this would be the line operators. Do you maintain what's called a transaction file for that purpose? You probably do. Almost everybody does. It's how you bill fee for service. Sometimes you have to expand out the items that you bill for at that transaction level. But what you do is every time you deliver a service like a lab test or a dose of a drug or a, an imaging exam, you actually make an entry in a file, probably right now. Now we have a little bit more granular detail than others. Um, then the second thing you have to do is instead of using what's called a charge master, you use a cost master. And in the cost master, you don't kind of make up what your charges are for each thing. You actually send in management engineers and directly measure your true cost. You can automate most of it. But today, the guy who runs it for us is just a few floor above me in our corporate office tower. It's a guy named Chris Brewerton. He has seven people who help him. You have to do it by facility because you get different cost structures in different facilities. So it was mostly an investment in that. And then at that point, just your regular billing process will give you those cost data. Yes, you can. Now, you need to know too, what, what EMR do you guys run? Epic. Epic, now that's a sad state of affairs, but <laughs> there's a next generation of EMRs coming out. The current generation are not gonna survive. And many of them have that built into it. So as you just do your routine clinical documentation, it's picking up the activity data, including the full, how much time you spent. You can build it in. How much time a nurse spent, you can build it all in, you see. Um, and so you'll see those coming over the next five or 10 years. So um, first, thank you uh, on behalf of the entire organization for taking time to speak to us today. I wonder if you could just speak for a moment about within your system, you mentioned having a few academic 
medical centers. Um, and were there any unique challenges in engaging with physician partners in an academic environment no. as compared to the community hospital environments that, that, that lived in your system? And, and what strategies did you use to no. engage uh, your academic colleagues? Yeah, there is a difference, is the first thing to be said. Um, you know, my favorite, well, it's all about change management. My favorite, my personal favorite approach to it is a guy named Rogers who wrote a book called The Fusion of Innovation. It was actually his PhD dissertation at University of New Mexico. But he was studying how new ideas diffused across society. And he's the guy who used that term early adopters. Innovators, early adopters, feeding into an early majority, a late majority, and then laggards down at the end. Um, that's the one that's worked for me. So nearly always, I look for people who will engage around a particular topic, who are interested in it, right? I, it's a bit of a joke, but there's an element of truth to it. Some of them are just absolute bastards. You'd wish they'd stay home. They're such a pain to work with, but they won't. <laughs> but their real best feature is they engage and then what you do is you start to examine it, you start to generate data around it, right? You start to show some successes, some changes in successes on a fairly small scale. And then you use that, so part of my job is to do the analysis and then I share their data broadly, give them a chance to speak about it, stuff like that. And it's, it's the data and word of mouth. The word of mouth is, is least as important. And you target the next group as the early majority, so they're open to the change, it's just not their top priority. Um, and so you get more and more of your early majority on board. You're generating better data, more data. You're, you know, you're cleaning things up a bit. Then you feed that into your late majority. These are the guys who are saying, be not the first to adopt nor the last to abandon. Pretty good conservative medical approach, right? Now you will have a group at the bottom. Some of them, frankly for me, old friends, I mean, that I went to medical school with. Um, some of them uh, really good, I mean, socially competent people. <laughs> Usually it's philosophic and it's very highly topical. So you might be a laggard on one thing and an early adopter on another. And what you do is you don't let the laggard slow you down. So when I'm building one of these, I never ask for approval, ever. Bad idea. <laughs> Philosophically, it's wrong because they're never perfect. By definition, a shared baseline is never correct. See that idea? Why would you ever approve it? Far more important politically, if I ask for approval, well, Greg Meyer, he used to run the Department of Internal Medicine at Mass General. So imagine I've got 300 people in the department. He used to say, what do you call a 299 to one vote? It's called a deadlock, <laughs> right? Well, guys, in that circumstance, don't ask for approval. <laughs> Just do it. So what I ask people instead is I say, what would you change? They look at it and say, well, this isn't right. And I said, of course it's not right. What would you change? Help me make it better. See the idea? Uh, if, if, guys, when you do this, if it's not fun, you're not doing it right. It should be a lot of fun. And what you're doing is your best professional self. You're trying to figure out how to make it better for our patients. You're trying to make it transparent to the clinicians. It, we studied this twice at IOM. You know, the government defines transparency as league tables, ranking physicians or hospitals. It turns out it has almost no leverage. Far more important, what if I could make the care transparent to the clinicians who deliver it and the patients they advise? That's where it all happens is in that clinician-patient relationship. 
what if I could make it transparent there? That's what we concluded twice, by the way, is that's where the real leverage is. Those data systems are mostly for you and through you for your patients, not for the news media. That's why you build it. That's how you build it, you see? Uh, and it, it's surprisingly energizing. You understand how good you can be. Dang, that feels good. You see it reflected in the lives of the people you serve, real lives, real people. Uh, that's even more profound. And you realize that you're creating a world far better than we ourselves received and unlike anything the world's ever seen before, you realize that we really can be much better for the people we serve in the hour that they seek our help. See that idea? It's the kind of idea that you can build a life around, a professional life around. It's a kind of a career that you can look back on and say, I made a real difference for my patients, for my profession, for my country. I mean, this would allow the Congress of the United States to continue to spend like drunken sailors for another 50 years if we got this one under control. With that, I have to go catch an airplane, so I'll say thanks for your time and attention. Good luck on your improvement work.